Hello and welcome to Self Studies, a podcast that explores how identity can inform a person's lived experiences and mental health. I'm Laura Duper, and today I'll be talking with Atiba McLean about mental health care in the Black community, culturally sensitive frameworks and care, and human respect. I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. My name is Atiba McLean, and I identify as he, him, male, straight. My folks are from the Caribbean, so uh, my mother's from Costa Rica, my father's from Jamaica. I was born here, so I guess I would be the first generation American, I guess. Could you tell us how you got to where you are now and a little bit about your work now? Sure. So when I graduated undergraduate school, I think this was in 94, I was kind of like on a soul-searching mission because one of the advantages that I had um, growing up was that my father had his own business. He sold office supplies. So my joke was Staples was, we got that. And my thing was, you know, we're the black Staples, so we, we got your back, you know. <laughs> so he sold office supplies and I always had a job. But I knew early on that that was not my identity. I, I didn't want to be like, this is this is your father's thing, so this is what you do, you know. I wanted to have my own identity in terms of my work. And it took a while to kind of figure that out. So I think I graduated college in 94. So while I was working with him, I was curious about working elsewhere, you know, to get some experience. And I worked with this woman who was a, I guess she's, she's still practicing, a career counselor. I decided to take some courses at the new school. And it was, and this was 2000. This was about careers in the 2000s, what, what to expect. And so I did this class. And I think the lady, the professor's name was Kathy Ulster. And uh, she connected me with someone, career coach in downtown Brooklyn. So we began to work together. And we did like this Myers-Briggs testing thing, my personality type. And, you know, my undergraduate was business administration. So I kind of started in that bag. So I would go on interviews. I would, you know, check it out, see what was right for me. And then one day she said, you know what? What about social work? I was like, social work? Mm-hmm. They paid $30,000 to get shot at. Like, who does that? You don't like me? Just, just tell me, right? <laughs> so she had me interview three Black men who had their own practice. And I think one was my age and the other two were older than me. It's like, you guys get paid $100 to me to talk to you? <laughs> I mean, it's for free. Like, but... <laughs> so it was just like, yeah. okay. So it opened up a whole new world. And I think while I was working with her, I did get, you know, some some job placements. I did work at other places. I worked at FEGS at one time. I worked at Bell Atlantic 9X Mobile. I was tr- still trying to find myself. And then after the interview, she was like, what about, you know, I thought about grad school because my bachelor's was business administration. So then I said, you know what, let me look at grad school. So I applied to Fordham. And I remember calling Hunter University. The phone would ring. No one would pick it up. So I called Fordham. How may, we, how may I help you? They were ready. So I went to Fordham. I started in 2005. I think I did, I did a non-matric. I did like a summer class. And then the next year, I just started to do two classes a semester. And I remember my peers, they were working. I mean, I was working too. And they had working for ACS, doing a lot of things. So my approach was like, you know what? I'm going to do this at my own pace. I'm going to take a couple of classes at a time a semester. And I'll graduate when I graduated. So I started in 2005, got out in 2009. And then 
my first job was with the Jewish Board of Family Children's Services. In that particular role, I worked with children and families on Staten Island, and Staten Island is very small. So mm-hmm. our office was right next door to ACS. So we get our referrals from ACS. And what would happen is I would do a home visit because Johnny wasn't going to school or was truant or there were some family issues going on. So I would meet with the family either at the office or at the school to find out what was going on. So I stayed there for about like, I'm going to say about six years and I kind of moved up. So the first, the first phase was preventive. And as I kind of moved up, the cases became more, more challenging in terms of like the family dynamics were, you know? And then after that, I left them. And then I literally like went around the block or down the corner or whatever to this agency called the Shine Center. And this was my first experience in working with the adult population who was HIV positive and mentally ill. It was great. It didn't work out for me at the time. I guess I wasn't able to keep up pace with doing the notes, but I did the notes, but it just wasn't fast enough for them. Mm-hmm. You know, I had like about a case little 30 and, wow. and so it didn't work out. And then I started temping and then I went to the Brooklyn Bureau of Children's Services. The, the role was a supervisor. That was a short-term thing. And then I remembered I worked at a, a foster care agency in, in Harlem. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was cool. So when I graduated undergrad in 2009, I studied for the LMSW. I remember 2009, we had a Christmas party. And what we would do is we would take the families. There was a gym and we would have like play basketball and stuff with mm-hmm. them. And then that, I remember that Christmas party, I was playing basketball and I collided with another team and my knee, I was on the floor. You okay? No, I'm not. And my knee was like, oh, so no. I was home for about three months and I was studying for the exam. What timing? <laughs> yeah. So I was like, I'm <laughs> off. I need to do this. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I came back in March, but I was like, I'm not confident. Let me just take a couple more months. I did the exam, passed it on the first try. I was like, wow. And I remember mm-hmm. when I sat for the exam, there were people in line like, I took this thing six times. It's hard. And I was like, whoa, what am I getting myself into? And when mm-hmm. I finished the exam, I was shocked that I even passed. I was like, oh shit, I passed. <laughs> so after that, I was working on my clinical hours. I think I was still at the Jewish board. I had also worked at a clinic in Crown Heights, seeing families, doing some therapy and stuff like that. I did that for a short period of time. After I left the Jewish board, did the Shine Center, did some temp work in Brooklyn, did the foster care in, um, in Harlem. And then when I was at the foster care in Harlem in 2014 and 2015, I was like, this is my game plan. My game plan is as soon as they sign up for my hours, I'm going to sit down and take this exam. So I accumulated my hours. It got signed off on. I sit for the exam and I was like, okay, this shouldn't be too hard. Well, I know it's not easy, but when I sat down for it, I scored like a 78 and I needed a hundred. I was like, what the hell happened? No, Cause I, <laughs> I study on my own. Yeah. And it would take me the next five years, six attempts and five years to pass. And I would get close and close and close. And then in January of this year, I passed and I was like, so if you ever saw the, yeah, yeah. So you, you ever saw the movie Night School with Kevin Hart? No, I haven't. It, he's silly, right? But it, the, yeah, the yeah, premise yeah. of it is that he <laughs> he's dyslexic. I don't I'm, I don't think I'm dyslexic, but he just struggled to get a GED. Uh-huh. So I was like, damn, I could relate to this. And then I got it, and I was like, Oof. 
That's amazing. The persistence too. I you're you're scaring me a little because I'm actually in school getting my MSW right now. So I'm on I'm on early on the road, but that is such a cool journey too to get to where you are. I mean, you've had so much experience working with a lot of different ages, it seems like a lot of children as well. That seems to be a population that you've worked with a lot. Is that still true now as you're beginning kind of your, your private practice or do you have an age group or a demographic you typically work with? So my nine to five, I work with the senior population. So okay. I'm, I'm back in Brooklyn and I work with this agency called the Fort Wayne Council. I've been here since 2019. So basically what I do is case management. So I help seniors out if they have issues like with their Medicaid, their Medicare, or getting an assessor ride or housing. So I try to, a lot of this stuff, I kind of learned on the job. So yeah. I call 311, 311 is my friend. And I just, mm-hmm. hey, I need help. I'm helping a senior. The other thing that I do is I do different kinds of workshops. So the workshops now, due to the pandemic, we do all of our stuff on Zoom. So I've been doing activities with them where we would look at videos for 15 minutes or, or splices of five minutes a piece and talk about different topics, about race, mm-hmm. about food, about current events, and just trying to stimulate conversation and discussion. Mm-hmm. So the last thing that we, we were about to finish up on Friday, it's called, well, it used to be called Ebonics, now it's African-American vernacular English. Okay. So the last portion of it, is I'm going to be talking about how Black folks who either live in this country or in the Caribbean who speak English and the different dialects that they speak. So I'm going to be doing that. That's, that's going to be the wrap up. Is that a new uh, program or is that something that's been going on for a while that you said it was formerly called Ebonics and now is, is called, I'm sorry, what did you say it's called now? AAVE. African-American vernacular English. So it just recently came into being, I don't know what year, mm-hmm. but in the 90s, they used to call it Ebonics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 90s and 80s, and now they kind of like got fancy and I would say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that for the Black community uh, or is it for education of, of all? Yeah, it's just education of all. So yeah. I do, like I said, I do different types of presentations. So I decided to do that just to, because every week I have to find something new to discuss. Mm-hmm. So um, I don't, do you watch Saturday Night Live? Yeah. Did you watch this week's episode? And I think they did a spoof on millennials and they were talking <laughs> like, right? So that's supposed yes. to be yeah. and Some people got offended <laughs> What was defensive about it? That's not, <laughs> right. that's that's kind of what it is. It's slang. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the thing about it is that when it comes to, I think people of African descent and our language systems, it's demeaned. It's seen as inferior. It's seen as problematic. But when someone else does it, oh, it's cool. Woo. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it's honored. It's elevated. Mm-hmm. So it's 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 a language system that we created because the folks that taught us how to speak English. They themselves weren't educated. And then, you know, we have our own language system. So we created, we, we spoke English the best way we can. And so that's what it is, you know. That's so awesome that you're getting to educate in that way and to kind of dismantle some of those stereotypes and things around it. And that kind of segues me into what I also wanted to talk to you about is kind of these 
barriers to entry for the black community, especially into American medical systems and including mental health care. What ways do you see that these systems have kind of fallen short for the black community? Well, I think it's, it's a combination of a lot of things. I think we have to go back in time together where we are right now because on my profile and album, what I wrote was that when it came to science and especially mental health, people of African descent, we weren't seen as human. We were seen as outside of, not a part of humanity. Mm-hmm. So coming into contact with Europeans, I mean, of course, you know, the thing is, what we often learn is that the African experience in the Americas was through enslavement, but actually Africans traveled to the Americas prior to enslavement. But under enslavement, what happened was that, first of all, you dehumanize, you're not seen as human beings. And then you have the scientists who would come up with this kind of like made of science called phrenology, a racist science saying that you're looking at different human skulls from around the world and Africans being at the bottom of the totem pole and working way up to whiteness, that we were ape-like, we were uncivilized, and that was a cognitive ability. So the further closer to white you were, the more intelligent you were. So we're talking about what, the 1700s, the the Enlightenment period, and then moving on up. So then you have the bell curve, you have all that kind of stuff. And then if you saw the movie Django, there's a scene where DiCaprio has the skull of a slave. So these things were happening. You have a medical apartheid where Black folks, you know, died or whatever. They would dig up their bodies. And and then recently, I don't know if you listen to Democracy Now!, there was this group of people in Philadelphia called The Move. And they were, you know, kind of radical in their thinking and in their living. And, you know, the establishment didn't like them. So they bombed their house. And children were in the house. Folks died. Mm. So they took the human remains after they, you know, bombed them. And their skeletal remains were studied in an anthropology class in Princeton. Whoa. When we look at that, right? Mm. Then we have the Tuskegee. Is, yeah. um, and then you, in Puerto Rico, women are injected and sterilized. So we wonder why Black folks are kind of like, take a COVID step? Really? Like, mm-hmm. This is the trust of the medical system. Henrietta Lacks. Yeah. Her skulls are used for experimental purposes. So I think that there's a lot of damage that has been done and there's a lot of mistrust. And even when we go to the doctor during this pandemic, there was a black doctor who literally filmed herself and said, I went to the doctor, I'm sick. And they told me to go home and I'm a doctor myself. And basically she died because she didn't get the proper treatment that she needed. Wow. So Williams, a tennis player, she gave birth and she knew something was wrong with her body. But she had to advocate for herself. And if she didn't, she could have been dead. Mm-hmm. So there's countless examples of Black folks, our relationship with medicine yeah. and the medical establishment and how we're mistreated. And then when you see incidents, especially of Black folks being accosted by police and they have a mental illness, you know, that doesn't turn out well. So when we get to therapy, there have been some Black clinicians who have been kind of strong, like Amos Wilson. Dr. Cress Welsing, Dr. Naeem Akbar, who looked at mental health from an Afrocentric lens. Mm-hmm. Looking at it from a European lens, it's a, first of all, if you don't value my humanity, you don't see anything of value in me. So how can you treat me? How can you work with my depression? Mm-hmm. You know, Dr. DeGroy, the book that she wrote, 
post-traumatic slave syndrome, mm-hmm. that, that kind of brings it home. So yeah. as therapists, mental health, we have to create a system where we talk about our history in this country and where we are now and how we push forward. So if we as therapists don't do that, you're not going to get any clients and people are not going to feel that they can trust you, you know? Just going to explain a little further on Dr. DeGore's research, which is so fascinating. She talks about this multi-generational trauma that just continues with continued oppression and then an absence of an ability to heal or access benefits available in the society, which then leads to the post-traumatic slave syndrome. And um, I just wanted to explain that a little more because I think it's such fascinating research and is is something that we really need to be paying attention to there you know and there's some neurological studies that are being done on this idea of multi-generational oppression and and trauma passed down through generations you know thinking about the allostatic load that just continues to build and compound and is passed along um, to children and to children's children and how we really are quite literally, it is still affecting black bodies are still experiencing this post-traumatic stress from generations of oppression with continued oppression in this country today. Along that line, how, how do you see the future of, of mental health care and more equitable systems? And like, what could that look like? Is it is it more education? Is it more training? Is it is it more access to care, different approaches to treatment? I know that's a huge question to ask one clinician, but you know, what in your opinion, what do you feel like needs needs the most attention right now? I think it's all of the above. You know, it has to be obviously education, it has to be historical, and it has to be contemporary. Yeah, it has to encompass all of that in order for it to be authentic. Because if it's not going to encompass all of that, then that misses the mark. And I, I think that's that's the place to start. You know, if I'm from the culture, then I have to be able to meet my people where they're at. That's what they say in social work school, right? Yeah. So you, you have to be able to speak their language. You have to be able to relate to them. And we have you a unique experience in this country. And then, you, and then there's also a difference because... African-Americans, our experience is different from people from the Caribbean, different from mm-hmm. people from Latin America, from the continent of Africa. So although we are, mm-hmm. we have the Africanness coming from different places is a different type of experience. So it is a lot, but it, the thing is that as a clinician or as an industry, you have to be interested in learning and wanting to, because when you learn about the people, then you can kind of create things to help them, you know? And the field of psychology and all mental health fields really have to confront their, like you said, this history of really white-centered care, um, both in psychological studies and and in the treatment room. It feels like all of these systems have been built upon or predicated on on the idea that, you know, we're serving a mostly male and white population, which of course is not the case. Do you find in in the communities that you serve and um, in your own experience that there is a lot of hesitancy to, the same kind of hesitancy to enter into 
the therapy spaces there is into the other medical realms and other experiences in, in medicine? I would say yes and no. I think I'm 50 this year, right? So I would think people older than me, there may be some resistance, but I think the more education people have, and not, not just necessarily the traditional education and going to school, but just being aware, people are understanding that if they just go to church or if they just go to the barbershop or the hairdresser, they need a, something, a supplement, right? They need to go to an expert who's someone that is unbiased, that has some experience that could help them. And I'm seeing that. So just started practicing therapy, period. I always ask people, say, what made you select me? Like, what's so special mm-hmm. about me? And they just said, I read your profile. I, I got a vibe. I felt comfortable. Um, one woman said, well, I, I wanted to work with Sheena, her boyfriend having issues that so she wanted to the therapist be a straight black man. So it's different things that people are looking for. This is all such good information. And I think was also like another thing I was going to ask you is that, I mean, it feels like another big missing piece of the puzzle would be to get more black clinicians in the mental health space so that we are being able to provide care to those who would prefer to see somebody with a more similar experience to them in that realm do you feel like that is is necessary or that's needed i feel it's necessary and i belong to different groups where there are black therapists where people are supporting each other where they pass their exams where they're giving like support to each other who are just starting out so i think it's there is a shift i think people are becoming more awakened to if it's social work if it's counseling if it's psychology or psychiatry I think there's, there has been a shift and, you know, people are, will have their reservations, maybe because of the cost of therapy. And I'm sure with the pandemic, because of telehealth, it's more accessible. And I think um, within the last 25 years or so, I think just society in the whole has seen the benefit of therapy. Because when we look at some of our celebrities, people who, you know, if they had someone to talk to, you know, they would still be here. And so I think people are like, wow, you know. The stigma of therapy is still there, but I think it's fading now. People say, you know what? I need help. You know, I need another pair of hands or another head in this so I can get some help. And of course, but there will always be resistance from any group of people, you know, because right, of right. how it's seen, you know. And of course, there's different styles of therapy, right? There's, mm-hmm. you know, so I think for people, you won't know unless you try it, you know? I know you mentioned there's, you know, kind of these these more non-traditional, not not forms of therapy, but are the ways in which the community is there for each other. Like, you know, you mentioned going to the barbershop, like, and talking to your barber about what's going on in your life or like going to church and kind of these, these set things in the community. How do you see that kind of informing maybe what could be a more community-centered care or more kind of like more culturally sensitive care do you see that that is like you know those systems that are already in place kind of influencing how maybe we could bring that into the conversation about traditional therapy sessions i know of some therapists that actually have a podcast where they actually do discussions in the barbershop because they realize that this is where my market is I need to go reach the guys and have discussions in the barbershop. Um, I do have a friend. He's an MSW like yourself. And he's been trying to take the elements 
the exam, mm-hmm. but he's like, you know what, let me start a podcast, mm-hmm. right? And he's been having people on. So I think as clinicians, we have to find our vehicle, our way to get to the people that we want to get to. I think for me, my vehicle has been my sense of humor, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You have to find a way to capture your audience. So some people have a YouTube presence. Some people will have an Instagram, you know, however it is that you, you can get the people that you want to connect with. Yeah. You know? It's scary, that idea of like, am I going to just go in and lay on a couch and have to talk about (laughs) all my issues when I would much rather be paying you to cut my hair than than the other thing, you know? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Yes, I think there's there's definitely a shift, you know, because it's like, you know, the the, the stereotype of, you know, sitting on the couch, talking about it. I mean, there's some Mm -hmm. therapists who walk, right? There's some Mm -hmm. therapists who exercise, you know, so because... When you're a therapist, you're a business person, right? So mm-hmm. you're, not, you're an entrepreneur. So you have to be creative mm-hmm. in ways to to break down that paradigm and say, you know, let me let me do a little something different. How am I going to reach the people that I want? And if a convenient way is while the person is getting a haircut, you have to be a therapist, right? And mm-hmm. you can meet them in that way, then that's, that's a good thing. You know, if it's going to the churches, if it's going to the mosque, whatever it is that you, you do yeah. so that you're comfortable, yeah. I'm curious, too, in your experience as a Black man, it feels like there's something gendered at play here, too. There, you know, I know that there's been some studies that have seen that the hesitancy towards therapy is pretty significant among Black men, more so than than Black women or Black non-binary people. And so I'm just curious what your experience has been um, with seeing other Black men or other people that you know that maybe share that hesitancy and how you feel like it plays out? Well, it's interesting because since I started, I would say most of my clients are Black men. Mm -hmm. So I think, and it's interesting that for the most part, they're younger than me, maybe five, 10 years younger than me, maybe one or two about my age. And I think that there was a shift. You know, I find that people who are seeking out therapy, they've tried different things. They're open to something new. There's like, this is my first time. I've never did this before. I want to get it right. So, I think people are having different thoughts about it, you know. Yeah. Of course, there is going to be an element in the Black community or any community that still has this reservation. And I think the thing is, the more it's normalized, then people will go. And I think men, you know, some men are more comfortable with speaking to men. Some men want to speak to women. Some women want to speak to men. Yeah. So I think that the more that the larger society within the Black community normalizes it, it's, and I think that's happening. People are normalizing. say, hey, man, you need to go and speak to somebody that starts to to take place you know yeah i'm curious just as we've been in this podcast series we're talking about identity a lot and how that impacts mental health and i am curious in your work and however much you want to share how you feel like therapy can kind of affirm or clarify a person's identity and how your own identity has maybe shaped your sense of self or kind of gotten you to where you are now? Well, I think for me, in knowing that there's something that I enjoy doing that can help people, that's that's fulfilling. And for me, what I realize is that as I'm providing services to people, it's a mutual relationship. So I'm learning about myself by helping you, assisting you. Um, so it's reciprocal. And I think especially during these times that we're living in, well, 
not just especially now, but just in general, just to be a black person in this country on the planet, given what we have to deal with, there has to be a space where we can talk about it and not just talk about it, come up with some solutions and say, okay, I need to do X, Y, Z. You know, therapy is one place if it's a community group or something, but there needs to be different places where you can kind of talk and hash things out, where you can um, kind of just meet with like-minded people to to try and get you to a goal of sanity, get you to a goal of just saying, okay, what are some solutions? I'm, I'm angry, I'm upset. Okay, so what are you going to do about it? So I think as long as we have, or as long as we create places and spaces, then change happens, you know? Totally. As we are in the time that we are in 2020 being a really big watershed moment for racial reckoning in our country and just really the the larger cultural reckoning of the existing systemic inequalities in our country and especially targeted towards Black communities. I'm curious what your experience has been with clients um, or anything you want to share about your own personal experience as the rest of the country has kind of has really been faced with it when really, you know, it's not that, of course, there were horrific murders that took place in this year or in, in, in last year, but but really it was an awakening to what you were already experiencing and what black communities were already experiencing, but the the rest of the country finally kind of woke up in a sense. Um, in some ways, of course, that we're, we're waking up continually, but I'm curious how you have kind of experienced that or how, how your experience of your clients has been as it feels like we're in this moment of, of racial reckoning and how that feels. Well, what I feel is that it's a constant evolution, you know, because I think about my parents are in their 80s and then I have to go back generations, you know, just keep going back and looking at what did my ancestors have to deal with and there was no support system for them. So now we're at a place where we can, you know, talk about it, come up with some healthy strategies to cope with, with racism and keep our sanity because what I find interesting about, you know, this country is that, you know, just recently we had two politicians. One was a conservative uh, black politician. I think it's, uh, I forget his name. He just said, America is not a racist country, but there's no racism in America. And then Kamala Harris said, yeah, America is not racist, but we'll, we'll address it if it comes up. And I'm like, er? so mm-hmm. like, that's like double speak. Mm-hmm. Like, so what is it not? And then, if this country can't call a thing a thing, we can't just say what it is, then that's problematic. So when you look at political leaders still not calling it what it is, then it doesn't get addressed, right? And then when we also look at how other groups in this country who have their own issues and own agendas, when government says, you know what, we need to address them because this is something that, that needs to be taken serious. But for people who have African descent, just to make laws to basically to protect us, is some confusion, you know, that they, they can't seem to manage. So that's also very upsetting and causes people to be like, damn, like what's, what's going on? So right. folks are either want to check out of it and want to deal with it, or folks are very angry about it, or folks are just kind of observing or folks would just kind of internalize and say, well, yeah, we're the problem. Black folks are the problem. We're too mm-hmm. violent. 
So it's people are all over the place. But my thing is, is it really us or is it the system that we're in that kind of has us mixed up? Because once again, if I look at other groups, you have the anti-Asian hate bill that was signed, mm-hmm. right? That that was immediate. Damn. Mm-hmm. You had one of the things that Biden did was he overturned certain things that were oppressing people who are transsexual. Damn. So my thing is, I mean, the Chauvin case, you know, thank God that went that way. Mm-hmm. But it's like, is it because we had a pandemic right. that this happened? Or is it like, well, you know what, I can, you know, it's very expensive when we don't prosecute and people are going to tear stuff up. So it's like, is the goal really about doing just enough just to address the situation? And the more we have that, the more you have doing just enough in terms of racism, then it's like, well, how do you feel about it? And then you look at other groups who are looking at people with African descent and they're observing and watching and then they want you to join their, their agenda. And then when something happens to them, it's like, oh, help. So it's like, my thing is like, mm-hmm. you know, what really gets addressed? And so people have to constantly be on it, on it, on it, because talking about it and not doing something, I mean, things are being done, but the thing is when it comes to addressing certain things, I mean, my man, the Biden made an executive order. Bam. There's no yeah. discussion. And so yeah. if you, as a leader, have no intention of doing that, you're, you're sending a message. It's more of this, and it needs mm-hmm. to happen. Yeah. You address it. If the house is flooding, you're not going to come to the house and say, well, let's mm-hmm. assess why it's flooding. <laughs> yeah. Let's just put yeah. some tape. And no, you, you, mm-hmm. you get to the source of the problem, you deal with it, and you try to do that. So it, there's yeah. certain simple things that can be done. Yeah. And again, when these things aren't done and, it's, and it languishes for a long time, it leaves people, like I said, angry, silent. They turn the anger out onto themselves or they check out. So it's like. Yeah. yeah. And that's what they're bringing into the therapy room. Like that is so that that's so mentally traumatizing and confusing. And just where do you place that? What is that? Because like you said, everything is sending a message and you're internalizing it or you're putting it out into the world, you know? Yeah. I mean, so far, my clients that I work with, the issues have been there, not like, let's say, a, a global concern or a contemporary concern. It's like a relationship or issue. But I'm going to yeah. be meeting with someone who mm-hmm. works in a 911. He's a uh, supervisor. So mm-hmm. it's like, wow. you know, I work with police officers. I'm a black male yeah. and things on the job happen. And I yeah. have to think about how I react because I have to keep my job. Mm-hmm. So he needs a safe space to talk about it, right? Yeah. So yeah, these things are, are going to come up, you know? So as a therapist, I mean, it, it could be police brutality. It could be microaggression. It could be a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So how do you, where do I have the space to talk about it? It's interesting what you said about, you know, calling a th- like a thing a thing. And that is something it seems like our country is not, doing or it feels incapable of because there's this inherent self-protection of of like we're not that we're not that so you know a plus b equals c like that you know if we can keep keep that at an arm's length and keep that at bay then we can keep ourselves protected and it reminds me of you know a obviously on a much more macro level but it reminds me of in this in the therapy space and mental health care like if you're not calling it what it is how are you gonna how are you gonna heal like how are you gonna get the help that you actually need you can't 
like you said, put a Band-Aid on it. That's not real change. That's right. To me, what it also speaks to is power. Because mm-hmm. the thing is, Black people aren't perceived as a group that has power, right? That, that can get what they want. That's, that's what the power for people, that's what it is. You mm-hmm. come down to its power or your perception of it. Not to say we don't have power, but that's the perception. And then what happens is within our community, there's people who want to kind of go for the appeasement. So we can't push too hard. We got to go slow. And then because they want to be moderate, they, they, they want to make people happy. And then you have more of the same thing. So I think with the generation behind me and my generation, things are going to snap. Because after a while, younger folks are, my joke is the difference between a Democrat and a Republican is that they're both going to the same destination, right? The Republican is an express train to hell while the Democrats make local stops, right? <laughs> so they're both going to hell, right? <laughs> so the thing is, at least with the Democrats, you can get off and negotiate. You can say, look, I don't, I'm done. <laughs> like, this is not working for me. Mm-hmm. And you can get some negotiation. But when you negotiate, you have to negotiate from a place of power. And what it may look like is another political part. It may, it may look like something to recreate so that there's equity, so that you deal with racism, you deal with income inequality, you deal with the environment. So maybe the new generation coming, my generation and going back, has to be like, you know what? These two models of power, one is a donkey, one is an elephant. We need to do something different because this is yeah. not working. That might be the, the therapeutic magic. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. we need to break this paradigm because this, yeah. this is not working. And I want to ask you just... A couple more things if you have time for it. In this time and in the wake of all of this racial reckoning, there has been a lot of this quote unquote doing the work or, you know, I'm doing better, I'm getting better, or I'm just here to listen. You know, a lot of these kind of colloquialisms that are tossed around, um, mostly from you know, people outside of the black community that are are saying this and are in some some ways, you know, it's hard to tell what's what and what's really, you know, what does it mean to do the work? And it seems like a lot of the onus falls on members of the black community to do teaching and to do the work for us in a lot of ways. And how, how are you experiencing that in your own world and in your client's world, does it feel like that is this weight or this pressure you mentioned, this internalized, like we are the problem, or maybe it's, it is an internalized thing that comes across in a different emotion. Like how are you experiencing um, or seeing people experience this time for other people to kind of come to these conclusions on their own or quote unquote, do the work? Well, I guess since I just started my practice, that hasn't come up yet. But just in just in general, just observing social media or people that I know, I see a variety of things happen. I see uh, non-black people, you know, um, doing the work. You know, maybe maybe if it's going to a protest, maybe it's filming something, maybe it's using their privilege for good. Mm-hmm. You know. And then I see people who are, they're just observant. They just watch it. They are tired. And then I see people who are just critical of themselves, of all I call it respectability politics. Or maybe if we just 
we learn how to code switch. So code switching basically, so code switching, we all do it as human beings. So the way you speak to your parents is different from the way you speak to your peers, right? Right. And so from a cultural context, code switching is that when black people, anybody who's non-white, there's a standard way of English to speak so that everyone understands you, right? So maybe if we speak standard English so that everyone can understand us, maybe if we didn't wear our pants hanging down and didn't listen to loud music and weren't so aggressive, we, you know, we wouldn't have problems. And there's people who think like that. They just think that if they just behave themselves, we wouldn't be attacked or bothered, you know? So that, mm-hmm. that's that kind of school of thought that people still hang on to, you know? And then I think what's happening is more and more, I'm seeing that from different groups of people, they're, they're, they're realizing, as you say, a reckoning that, you know, racism is pretty much dangerous and it's destroying the planet. You know what I mean? Because for me at this point in my life, where I'm at is that you and I may not live in the same neighborhood. We may not marry each other. We may have different things. But my thing is, it should always come down to respect. And if we have respect for each other, then we can do something. And if we observe the animal kingdom, predators hunt when they're hungry. You never heard of a lion just like massacring 50 buffaloes. First mm-hmm. of all, you can't catch 50 buffaloes. <laughs> and if you catch a buffalo, there's a pecking order. It takes time, right? So they don't, mm-hmm. they don't just go into a Walmart and shoot up people, right? Mm-hmm. You know, they just don't operate that way. And so mm-hmm. we can learn a lot from animals. And what I find interesting, it's kind of related, but when people bring in like a dog or a cat or a dog befriends a squirrel, like these odd relationships, it's interesting how animals in certain instances can befriend each other, coexist peacefully and find a way to work it out. And so my thing is, as human beings, we have two options. We have a, we have a couple of options. It's either we're going to find a way to work out our existence on this planet, or we will continue to have more viruses. Because quite frankly, I think that we are the virus. And I don't think it's necessarily something that's made in the lab, but I think it's something, it's our behavior towards each other. So racism, destroying the environment, underpaying people, it has effects on the, on, on the environment. Yeah. It destroys the environment. The thing that we, I'm speaking to you on, a cell phone, who makes the cell phone? Where does it come from? Who mines it? Yeah. So all of this stuff has an impact. And Mother Nature's like, you know what? I'm going to give you a little sprinkling. Hmm. I'm going to let you guys chill out and give you a pandemic because <laughs> you're not getting the message. So my thing is the more that we keep this war between this whole foolishness, look at what's happening in Israel and Palestine. It's madness. Yeah. I mean, you guys are pretty much in the same land. You're taking someone else. Like, well, what's going on? And it, it, this has been happening since time is old, right? But yeah. when do we get it? And again, it's not, it's, right. it's respect. If I'm a wealthy person and I make a billion dollars, but I can't pay you a decent ways to live. So mm-hmm. how do we treat each other just on a human level? And again, I, I'm not saying there has to be utopia, but there has to be a sense of respect. I have to yeah. see your humanity so you can see my humanity. If I wouldn't want you to be shot by a police officer, if I wouldn't want someone to make fun of your disability or because you're transgender, whatever, if I can see that, whether I like people or gay or whatever, it has nothing to do with it. But do I respect you as a person what would I want for my son is what I would want for your daughter. Yeah. And if you could just do that simple thing, maybe that could, you know, shift us. Yeah. yeah. But I think we literally can heal the planet or destroy it. That's kind of how I see it. 
but I mean, look at the year we had. I mean, we, we all the things that we think we have some semblance of control over, like, you know, we can keep it in our tiny little neat boxes and continue life the way we are. We can't. I mean, we are, we are moving one way or the other, just like you said about calling a thing a thing, you know? We gotta call it like it is, and if we intend to move forward at all, Gosh, thank you so much for your time. I could talk to you for a bunch more hours about this. You have so much wisdom and insight and in, in your life experience. And yeah, the work that you're doing is just really incredible. So thank you. You're welcome. This episode was produced by Dave Emmert. Self Studies is a podcast by Alma a company dedicated to simplifying access to high-quality in-network mental health care for both consumers and clinicians. To learn more, visit helloalma.com.